Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome. We here at the Real Wealth DNA Radio Show are honored that you're joining us today. Whether you're on the West Coast or in Phoenix where our guest is and you're sipping a cup of coffee, uh, the East Coast may be getting ready for lunch or in Europe where I am this week. And uh, Pete, by the way, <laughs> just a quick interruption, the pictures all of a sudden started coming up again. Anyway, we've, we've been having technical problems. I had arrival problems, and we haven't heard from our guest yet. So uh, it's going to be an exciting show. I never like a uh, dull moment. Uh, or let's say you're somewhere in between that uh, West Coast, East Coast, and Europe. Uh, or maybe you're listening to the show on the archive. I'm sure you'll be glad you joined us. I certainly hope the quality of my audio is better than during last show. When I had to broadcast from a European office, today I'm in a location with a better voice and data line. Now, on the Wealth DNA radio show, we focus on the fundamentals and uh, try to you know, give you some ideas to build your wealth and occasionally focus on ways to retain your wealth. And we just happen to be doing that today. So I occasionally... Uh, it's online, Ron. I, I just saw that. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I occasionally also mentioned that uh, we want the archive of the show to be just as relevant 20 years from now as listening live. For today's show, I certainly don't want you to re-listen to the show 20 years from now in 2034 and realize you made a big mistake by ignoring the advice you hear from our guest. Before we dig into our main topic of asset protection, I'd ask you bear with me for just a few minutes while I rant about some recent changes in the U.S. tax and financial reporting laws. So this week I spent, or more correctly wasted, more than 10 hours preparing the new FBAR Form 114 for U.S. citizens to report the values of each of their foreign accounts. Well, prior to 2011, individuals and some entities merely filed a single form with the cryptic name of TBF 9022.1 to the U.S. Treasury by June 30th. I've been doing that for about 20 years, so it was pretty routine already. For people who use tax software or a tax preparer, that form is prepared. You just basically enter the information once and update your account balances each year, add new accounts, of course, if they've changed. So it only took a few hours, and uh, even if you had, as I do, a number of different currencies, a number of different accounts. Well, in 2012, some additional bureaucracy was added. You see, a new IRS form called 8938 was introduced. That's virtually identical information, but it has to be filed with your U.S. personal tax return, in addition to filing the usual TDF-90 with the U.S. Treasury. 
And fortunately for the users of tax software or tax preparers, that form was prepared using the same data we already entered for that form TDF-90. I think TD stands for tedious. So despite the added bureaucracy, it didn't add a lot of extra effort for those of us with accounts in foreign currencies. Well, here we are in 2014. Even though the Form 8938 stays in place, a new Treasury Form 114 replaces the old TDF-90, which duplicated the information. So, so far, so good. You understand the idea? We've had duplicate forms for a couple of years, and we still have duplicate forms. Well, it's not so good. You see that U.S. Treasury, in its lack of wisdom, created the new Form 114 so that it has to be filled in manually by each filer. In essence, retyping all of the information you already entered for your Form 8938. They also made it mandatory to electronically file this new form to BSA. What the heck is BSA, you ask? Well, that's the Bank Secrecy Act and a whole new department in the U.S. Treasury with that name. So they added staff and created a whole new burden on tax, uh, a burden, if you will, on taxpayers and U.S. citizens. I'm currently not a happy U.S. citizen. Now, the majority of people, and maybe even some of our listeners, will probably say, well, Ron, that's your problem for having accounts in foreign currencies, as if that's a bad thing to reduce your risk by holding multiple currencies in countries you travel to or do business in. Well, let me introduce another new law that could be a major problem for those of you who do not currently have accounts in foreign currencies. That law is called FATCA. Sounds like fat cat. There's no T at the end. And that F-A-T-C-A is another government acronym for Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. The purpose, just like the Bank Secrecy Act, is to make sure that you and foreign banks divulge information on any of foreign accounts you have. And I can assure you, while I'm in Europe, Swiss bankers do not even want to talk to U.S. citizens about new accounts right now. But there's a hidden agenda in FATCA that you need to be aware of. The law blocks your ability to open new accounts in foreign currencies if you renounce your U.S. citizenship. Let me repeat that. If you renounce your U.S. citizenship, the U.S. government would not allow you to open accounts in other countries. Well, why would they do that? Well, with all of the additional bureaucracy and regulations being added for U.S. citizens who own assets like you or I, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of people renouncing their U.S. citizenship and the government wants to tax their assets before they leave. So if you don't already have foreign accounts, life will be more difficult for you. Now, for any of our listeners who lived in a socialist or communist country, this may sound like what Yogi Berra affectionately called deja vu all over again. It's particularly frustrating for me at a time when foreigners are being brought into the U.S. through unguarded borders and provided financial support and housing, and the borders are being closed to people who want to leave and don't want to continue paying for all those social programs. For those of you who feel I'm anti-immigrant, let me share that both my parents were legal immigrants and my wife is a legal immigrant. So I'm very familiar with the costs and bureaucracy of immigrating to the U.S. if you do it legally. So there's a major financial incentive to cross the bridges over the Rio Grande into Texas during the night when the border guards are told to stay home. Now, some of you may be wondering, what does this dialogue have to do with our main topic today, asset protection? 
The answer is it absolutely does. You see, just like the U.S. government who wants to take money from what you've worked very hard to accumulate, there are many other people in the world who would also like to take assets away from you. In other words, they'd rather work hard to acquire your assets as opposed to working hard to acquire their own. They look for ways to get into your pockets. Mine, of course, too. And incidentally, the higher tax rates rise, and they certainly will, the more people there will be looking for ways to take away your and my assets. Today is Monday, July 14, 2014. It is 9.07 a.m. in the, uh, both Arizona and the West Coast, and 18.07 in continental Europe. It's the only day I ever like it, so we'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth Day Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona, despite our travels and technical difficulties we occasionally have. Now, if you didn't receive a reminder of the show, you just want to connect with us on Twitter or Facebook where we post reminders. Just connect with the Ronald. Together is one word. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, for helping us put together and share some great information with you. I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can find them in the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us where where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during the show, and I recommend using the chat window. Under the radio player, if you're coming in through the Internet, there is a chat window, and I just uh, suggest typing your question in there. That way we can fit it into the proper sequence. You can also call in 917-388-4162, and our producer will put you through. Or you'll give us the comment if you'd rather not. Since our last show, the U.S. equity markets registered three new highs. Despite all this bureaucracy and regulations I complained about and the two negative signals I mentioned a couple months ago, the U.S. equity markets are off to a uh, very positive start today. Asia was up dramatically, and and Europe, which just closed, was up dramatically as well. Today's special guest to discuss asset protection is Ike Jevji, attorney of, uh, attorney of counsel with Davis, Miles, McGuire, and Gardner, that's the full name, who specializes in asset, asset protection and wealth preservation. Now, in the way of disclosure, I'm a client of, of uh, Davis Miles, a very uh, large law firm based in the Phoenix Scottsdale area, but that was not a factor in inviting him to be a guest on the show. We simply strive to have some of the experts in their field, like Ike, happens to be such an expert in this field. He just happens to work for Davis Miles. He's been uh, featured in a Wall Street Journal article regarding the use of asset protection trust. He's worked with over 4,000 clients to protect their $6 billion of combined assets so far. Ike has been rated by AVVO as 10.0 superior for four years in a row. And if you're not familiar with AVVO.com, it's an expert Q&A forum where people can ask legal questions of lawyers and find lawyers by specialty and geography. And by the way, I didn't know that either, so I'm going to take advantage of that in the future. He was also recently named Arizona's Finest Lawyers, a pure juried group. Let's give a warm radio welcome to Ike Devji. Welcome, Ike, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for sharing some time with me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, and I gave a brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say if you go to a cocktail party like this show. Um, I guess that's that's a good question. It's a great place to start. People say, what do you do? Um, And I say, I'm an asset protection attorney. And then they say, well, what's that? 
And I explain that further by saying that I'm a bodyguard for money. I work with successful Americans to help them preserve uh, their success in many different forms, whether it's through hard assets or through real estate or whatever the form it is, and help them manage the risk that would put them in harm's way in the first place. Okay. All right, and so that would be, I guess, a reasonable definition of asset protection. So I think most listeners uh, would probably wonder, what is asset protection in terms of, uh, let's use that bodyguard analogy, other than owning a few firearms. Uh, give us <laughs> kind of, uh, how you define asset protection. I understand the bodyguard piece of it, but you know, how do you define asset protection? Well, that, that's a great question, Ron, and, and unfortunately, it, it, the answer is different depending on who you're talking to and what you're selling it. Uh, and, but my opinion of what asset protection is, is that number one, it's a holistic science, meaning that it's got to be a combination of four core areas that your program actually focuses on. So one is the right legal planning. That's my job. The second part is the right kinds of insurance planning. The third part would be the right kinds of investment planning. And the fourth four column, if you will, would be the right kind of tax planning. So the way I look at asset protection is anything that threatens the wealth of the people who have asked me to help protect them is unacceptable. Any risk that we can identify, whether it's our client has gone out, worked very hard, built a huge company over the course of 30 years of hard work, and is now looking at losing half of it upon his death to estate taxes, well, that's a failure. Or as you mentioned in your introduction, if we have somebody who goes out, works very hard, runs a successful business, employs a bunch of other people, and then loses that to a lawsuit, that's asset protection. Uh, or if you just simply work very hard and make a good income and aren't taking steps to minimize your taxes in the way the law allows, that's asset protection too. Does that make sense, the way I'm okay. saying that? Uh, it does. Oh, I like that. I like that breakdown. But now some people are going to say, well, that sounds like estate planning. Isn't that what you're trying to do in estate planning? How do, you do, how do you explain the difference between the two of those? That is probably one of the most common fatal flaws that Americans face is not understanding the okay. difference between estate planning and asset protection. So I'm glad you asked that. Estate planning, I think we all get, is death planning, right? What happens yep. to my stuff when I die? Who gets it? at what tax treatment, how do they get it, when do they get it. Now that's very important and what we see is that the most successful people in America typically do take steps to implement estate planning. They plan for their death. What they fail to do is the asset protection planning which I de differentiate as life planning. How do we manage, control, and protect and retain wealth during our life? Most people don't have a plan for that. Okay. I, I think that's a good differentiation. I had not thought of it that way, but uh, I think that works for me. Hey, before we dig into specifics, would you share with our listeners how they'd contact you and learn more about asset protection in their particular situation? Is there a website, email address? Uh, sure, sure. In fact, um, my website is uh, www.proassetprotection.com. No pro-asset protection, as in professional asset protection. And that website has hundreds uh, of articles uh, for consumers, attorneys, and financial advisors 
on various issues related to wealth preservation and asset protection planning. Uh, many of them are by me. I've written hundreds for various uh, publications around the country, as you mentioned, but uh, many of them I also rely on third-party experts in other areas. So we've got a really good uh, selection there that you can sort by index. Everything from is my serving on a board of directors a liability to are my children a liability to uh, how, how to hire a CPA, uh, all, of, all of the things that successful people should know are listed there. And then my email address, if your listeners would like to, to sure. contact me directly, is ID, like identification, at the wealthy, and then the number 100, ID at the 100com yep. You can also That's reach me ID, through proassetprotection.com. Exactly. And the ID, of course, is your initials, like WG. Yes. Okay. Now, while we were searching for the right person to this show, uh, we found a number of people who claim to be specialized in asset protection. They're really insurance agents. Help our listeners understand insurance versus asset protection. Are they the same, or is there a big difference? Um, no, that, I think there's a very substantial difference, and I'm glad you, you pointed that out. Uh, since the beginning of the current recession that we're hopefully on our way out of, and that's obviously a, a point of debate for another time. Uh, but since the beginning of these problems, let's call it late 07, early 08, Americans have asset protection on their radar and are thinking about it and talking about it in a way that they've never done before, at least at a level they've never done before. And as such, asset protection has become a marketing buzzword that we see applied to everything, whether they're selling insurance or annuities or anything else, um, it is being used as a catch-all phrase. For the several decades before that, it was used in a more specific context of the specialized kinds of legal planning that we do to implement the right structures and the risk management that goes along with that. Insurance is part of asset protection for sure. It is the first layer of defense. It is the street level line of defense. And if that is not done the right way and in a complete way, then you end up having to rely on the legal tools and the other strategies that a guy like me would put in place. So I don't think it's ever complete to assume that insurance on its own is asset protection. And um, you know we can talk about that in detail as we get further into our conversation about why isn't insurance alone enough. Exactly. But it, no, it I, is it, certainly it, it, one element, but it is not a complete solution. Just like I'm not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, and also you had mentioned it's one of the one of the four uh, core elements is indeed insurance. But again, I want to make sure we address some of those misconceptions out there, especially when somebody calls themselves an asset protection. Uh, expert and they are really handling insurance. Now, I've also talked to a number of investors over time who thought an umbrella policy would uh, be sufficient to protect their assets, because they, they, especially if they own real estate. Uh, how do you respond to them? I think an umbrella policy is a phenomenal idea. In fact, I insist that my clients get one of a minimum of $1 million over their home and auto coverage. I love to see umbrellas on commercial properties. Uh, and commercial policies of every kind as well. The problem is in, um, number one, the adversarial relationship that exists between every single one of us, every one of your folks that is listening, you and me, and the insurance company that we pay ourselves. 
and the different definitions that insurance companies and consumers have on umbrella. So to the average consumer, Ron, an umbrella conjures up an idea of a warm, soft, gentle arc of protection that's over you and your family and everything you've ever worked for, and no matter what happens, you can get shelter under that umbrella. And that is the way that they are marketed. Those are the commercials that you see nonstop on TV when you're trying to watch your favorite program tonight, whatever it is. <clears throat> the reality is that to the consumer, umbrella means everything. To the insurance company, it means something substantially less than that. It means specific events covered in the base policy covered to increased limits, specific limits, with a very specific list of exclusions. Now, does that is that, Ron, to you the same as, quote, everything? <laughs> no, no, exactly. The list of exclusions is the key there. And, 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 and of course, they're in long, long documents, so that uh, it's those things that will get you eventually when, when you start arguing with the insurance companies. Well, yes, certainly that. And let's not forget that let's say one of your listeners owns their own business, which I know many of them do. <laughs> and let's say one of them has a dispute with an employee over – some workplace condition and they get sued by the employee, which is the number one exposure that American business owners face, by the way, is an employee lawsuit. Okay. Let's and let's say that that person feels comfortable uh, and hasn't done any asset protection and has perhaps even been wrongly told by a CPA or financial advisor that they're not rich enough to worry about it and just to buy an umbrella. Well, how is that guy's personal umbrella over his home and auto coverage going to protect him against an employee lawsuit? It's not. And so we see this misinterpretation of the phrase umbrella and what it covers by the consumer as a huge risk. Okay, good, good. A couple good points there. You know, have helped me. I didn't, I didn't, you know, really think at any time also to know that that was kind of the number one risk out there. So I appreciate that one already. But would it be fair to then say that insurance is necessary but not sufficient in most cases? You nailed it, Ron. That's absolutely okay. correct. It is the essential first line of defense. But there are, I tell, I warn clients about gaps in either the depth of coverage or the width of coverage. So by depth, I mean how much money is, 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 is behind the policy. And we routinely see cases where the liability exceeds the amount of insurance coverage in place. So that's the depth. Now, when we're talking about the width, what I'm referring to there in, in my euphemism, at least, is how many different things are actually covered by an insurance policy. So as I said, a personal umbrella policy of $5 million over your home and auto coverage in case something bad happens at one of those places is still not going to protect you against an employee lawsuit at your business or you know, some, some other, uh, other non-related exposure. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. It's either not going to be enough or the thing that you're worried about is not going to be covered, so you better have a plan B. Okay. Now, I assume that means that some of your clients are buying specialty insurance uh, to, to cover those kinds of situations in addition to what the, you know, the standard insurance would be. What are some of those maybe common types of, or, 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 or you know, often used specialty uh, insurance uh, types? Well, that, that's a great question, and yes, as I said, it's important that they have, uh, when we talked about the, the width of the insurance coverage in your last mm -hmm. question, this is exactly what I was referring to. So let's say, for instance, 
I have a client who has a business, and it could be anything from a doctor's office to a nightclub, that accepts credit cards from their clients or their customers. I insist that that client has what we call data breach insurance in place, which means that it's also known as cyber liability insurance, and this is something I make all my financial advisor buddies buy too, because you folks as financial advisors have social security numbers, account numbers, everything else. So that kind of insurance, for instance, protects people against the loss, theft, or hacking of client credit card numbers. You've probably, Ron, heard of a little store called Target? and the massive exposure they had a year ago? Yeah. Okay, so if, they can, if it can happen to Target, Ron, it can happen to every single person listening. Right? I mean, for, for us to think that we have better security in place than Target uh, as individuals or small business owners is uh, delusional. So that's one example. Another example uh, would be to address the issue I just talked about, about employee lawsuits. I ask every client that has employees to take some risk management steps, which is the proactive side of asset protection, and have both a professionally drafted employment manual and something we call EPLI insurance. It stands for Employment Practices Liability Insurance. And that specifically provides defense if you have a problem with an employee, and just the cost of litigation these days, Ron, easily run into six figures on things like this. Oh, yeah. So even if you win, your, your listener might spend a quarter of a million dollars or more defending themselves from a case that might not even have any merit. Now, those are just two examples of a half a dozen or so kinds of specialty insurance we might investigate for a client and advise them to obtain. And remember, I don't sell insurance. But I sure as hell make people buy it every day. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to ask that question otherwise. Now, let me just uh, pause here and remind our listeners you're tuned to the Wealth Dinghy Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday, and hopefully you look forward to joining us. If you missed some of the prior shows, like the several I mentioned earlier, if you want to listen to them, you maintain an archive of shows on www.wealthdna.us. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the show, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Or you can follow The Ronald, all one word, on Twitter or Facebook. Reminder, during the, the uh, radio show, we welcome you, our listeners, to um, send us a chat. And that's the easiest way, at the bottom of the radio player. Or you could call in 917-388-4162, and that's at the top of the screen as well. Our topic today is asset protection, which we're discussing with Ike Devji, an attorney with Davis Miles, who specializes in asset protection and wealth preservation. Now, I, before we cover some of the real estate-related risks, those are obviously fairly extensive. Uh, let's talk about Irene Investor. I couldn't use uh, Ike Investor. Somebody might get confused. Uh, who owns a home, uh, financial investments, and maybe a small business. Uh, does she have asset risks that should be addressed as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the common things that we as asset protection attorneys try and combat, and I do, I teach continuing education to attorneys, physicians, and financial advisors all over the country, is there's this myth out there that asset protection is only for the super rich where, or the ultra high net worth. And I think in most financial circles, ultra high net worth these days is categorized as people worth over $10 million in net worth. Of course, those people should do this and they do it increasingly commonly. 
but let's talk. Let's think about that in in real hard dollar street terms, Ron. Let's say there's one of your listeners who's listening right now who's 60 years old, and he's he or she is a successful person who has spent the last 30 years of their life working hard, doing the right thing, following good advice, pushing something uphill with both hands, and they wake up one day, you know, it's a 30-year overnight success story, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that person who's quote-unquote only worth $1 million or $2 million, let's say, all in, house, investments, the investment real estate, the whole bit, uh, or who is working their way towards that goal, that person could be wiped out by something as simple as a single car accident, whereas the high net worth client who has 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 million like some of my clients do, that person can take a multi-million dollar lawsuit hit, and their life is not going to change very substantially. Their kids are going to stay in the same schools. They're going to stay in the same colleges and private schools. They're going to keep their cabin. They're going to keep their golf club membership. They're going to be angry about it. But which one of those people was more affected? And what we have found is that people who are mass affluent or successful, whether they feel that way or not, um, are at higher risk simply because they, number one, have a larger proportion of their net worth at risk to anything that happens. And number two, if it happens to somebody who's already spent 20 or 30 years pushing something uphill, Right. and they lose a substantial portion of that, do you think that person has the time and life energy to recreate that effort? Most of the people no, I talk to say they don't. Correct. Well said. Well said. Now, we move from then Irene Investor and, and, and some of those uh, ultra-network, you know, high-network folks. Uh, let's talk about professionals, for example, and I think of dentists, consultants, doctors, lawyers, and engine chiefs. Uh, do they have a higher risk than the average investor would? I think so. Uh, you know, there are certain kinds of professions that we know have very large professional liability. Um, physicians, you know, that you mentioned, dentists and doctors are certainly mentally at the top of that food chain, if you will, for most of us, and they certainly feel that way. And in fact, if you look at the the, mal the uh, largest civil verdicts of the year, just in in Arizona, where I happen to practice from, and I, I work with clients all over the country, but my my office happens to be in Phoenix. Uh, several of the largest civil verdicts of the year, every year, are for medical malpractice claims, for instance. So doctors carry an average of $1 million in medical malpractice insurance coverage per occurrence. But we consistently see awards that are a multiple of that, that are $2 million, $3 million, $5 million. Now, Ron, I know you know a bunch of successful physicians. How many of them can write a $3 million check? Well, they're not going to be happy about it even if they did. Uh, but uh, no, my chance <laughs> Very few of them. Time. Yeah, very yeah. few of them. And as you said, that, that kind of professional liability, especially in an environment of increasing regulation, which I know you certainly have some opinions about, uh, that I think are the same as my own, we are being regulated so heavily that that is another layer of liability. So we now have to, for instance, with our physician clients, make sure they have things like rack audit insurance, which is Medicare audit insurance, because Medicare hires um, 
auditors to go out and make sure that everybody is being honest and not overbilling them, which I think you and I would both agree with is a good idea, that we make sure that we're not throwing tax money away. Unfortunately, these auditors work on a contingency basis. So whether you have done anything or not, if they feel you have or want you to defend your business, um, you are subject to incurring huge amounts of costs. And they can go back with doctors, for instance, and request up to 450 files every 45 days. Now, as that kind of regulation increases in every business, whether you're a financial advisor or an attorney or you own a construction company uh, and you have different kinds of regulations that you have to work with, uh, with your compliance on, on your employees, for instance, and their work eligibility, right. these things are becoming more and more onerous for all of our clients. So take the everyday walking around liability. Did somebody fall down at my property? Did my kid hit somebody with a car? Did my employee do something they shouldn't have? And then add to that several layers of very, a very high degree of professional liability, and you see why those people investigate this kind of planning um, more regularly than the general public does. Okay. Now let's switch to real estate investors. That's a category obviously I fit into. Uh, they're, they're subject to a number of dis different risks, but when I say real estate investors, that would include people who decided to rent out their former home, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that's a very common thing with the, with the folks I work with. Most of my clients, when they reach a certain level of success, have a nice personal residence that's their you know, home or maybe a home that's on their way to their dream home. And then they have uh, a piece of investment property. In some cases, it it's a property that belonged to one spouse or the other before they were married. So maybe they're married now and they have a home that they jointly live in, but they kept uh, Mrs. Smith's condo and now rent it out. Uh, that's a very common example. So we see lots of those kinds of things. And yes, those folks have several different kinds of risks. Obviously, they have the debt liability risk, and then they have the risk of being a landlord. And if that is in a mm -hmm. commercial setting, some people think, well, it's not a, it's not a big apartment building or it's not, a, it's not a shopping center. It's not that risky. And what I advise all of my clients is that, first of all, in most cases, the person who owns the house has more money than the person renting the house. So if you are picking one of those people to sue, Ron, which one are you going to pick? <laughs> no, it's obviously the owner. It's always exactly. The owner. Sure. We, we are also concerned about that kind of thing because not only do you have a very high degree of care as a residential landlord in having a property that is safe and fit for the rental purpose that you held it out, but you have liability for all of your renters, guests, and business invitees. If they have a party and somebody jumps off the roof into the pool and misses and breaks their leg on the pool deck, you own that. If they have somebody come to perform some work and that person slips and falls down, you own that. So yes, there is some substantial risk with that, and it, and it can be easily addressed. It just needs to be done the right way. You know, and there are a couple specific things that we could share with your listeners. Number one is you shouldn't have that property in your own name. It should be in some kind of legal vehicle that makes it legally distinct from yourself and the rest of your assets. The other thing is that you should have adequate levels of insurance in place, and you should have policies and procedures in place on who you rent to and what they're allowed to do and all of those kinds of things that try and proactively limit the risk. 
Um, so if you have somebody who continually has wild parties and creates a danger in one way or another uh, and is a nuisance to the neighbors and jeopardizes your property, well, you should have done a couple of things on the way in. And none of these things are perfect. There's still things that fall through the cracks, but you should have screened them. You should have done a background and a credit check. You should have policies and procedures that say what they are and are allowed to do at the property. Uh, you know, various things like that. So you, it's not as simple as, hey, I'm going to buy a house and rent it to somebody and, you know, just keep repeating the process and next thing you know, I'm retired. It doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> okay. No, that's a good point. And especially if somebody that, is, as you said, you know, the, the uh, second home or the former home is, is rented out very often, they don't think of moving it into another entity because they've, they've, they've owned it in their own personal name and, and, and just kind of keep going along that way. Just kind of, you know, status quo. I'm just collecting a little income instead of uh, still selling it off. So I think those are, those are very good points. And usually it's that single property landlord that knows less about tenant lawsuits and, and, and the depth, uh, using your term, of uh, how expensive those can be. Literally, uh, you know, wiping out a lot of investors that thought they were uh, building a nest egg. Uh, now, let me go to another category of real estate investor. It's, it's very different in some ways where they don't own a property. They're just doing some private mortgage loans. In other words, they're acting as a banker. Uh, they would have much lower risk because they don't actually have tenants in their property and they don't own the home, correct? They, they have a different kind of risk, and I would agree with you to that, to that some degree it's lower. But they do have, well, they have less, let's say, what we would call P&C risk, right, Ron? Property and casualty property risk. And casualty. Yep. Yep. Right? They have a much higher degree of regulatory risk, right, mm -hmm. when you're in, in yes. that kind of thing. Um, and we do have lots of clients who have been successful in some other business, including real estate, and then use the fruits of that success, their capital, whatever cash they have, to do exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. They might be a hard money lender or you know, whatever term they operate under. Sure. And we do see a substantial number of liabilities come out of something like that because they, do not, they make several mistakes. Number one is they do it in their own name. And mm -hmm. what we love to see is even some very basic, simple entity set up to be the entity that is uh, making the loans and conducting the business and that is receiving the payments. And this is a commonly overlooked thing, Ron. Let's say that you and I know a guy who's a successful investor and he's got 15 different receivables out there where he's made loans or hard money loans or private mortgages or whatever. Mm -hmm. And each of those produces a stream of income. So far, so good? Yep. Okay. If all of that income is payable to John Q. Client on a monthly basis, and John Q. Client goes out and gets into a lawsuit on a completely unrelated issue, let's say he has another successful business with the employees or he is the uh, CEO of another company or whatever it is, and he gets sued, the f income stream coming back to him is now at risk to any of his creditors. Right. All right. Well, so what very, we would do well. is set somebody like that up with a simple entity, make sure that they have properly and legally drafted loan agreements that are professionally drafted by an attorney so that they are actually, number one, enforceable, and number two, perfect the client's security interest in whatever he's making a loan on, you know, his lien, 
we, number, we want to make sure that those things are right. We want to make sure that the contract is enforceable under the law and that the terms of the contract don't violate the law. We're going to make sure that the money coming back is paid to a corporate entity to protect that stream of income from the owner, right? Because remember, we're pro asset protection works two ways. I protect people from and their assets from the outside liabilities. We also protect people from the things they own, like an investment property that you asked me about a few minutes ago. Correct. And so we would we would look at how how that should be organized, and then you know depending on the level of lending they're doing, I'd probably consider having them get some liability insurance and some D and O insurance, which stands for directors and officers insurance. Okay. Because in a situation like that, where we have uh, typically an entity like that is narrowly owned, it's owned by just one or two people Absolutely. that are making those kinds of loans. We want to make sure that they have uh, that DNO insurance in place to protect them if there is an action brought against them on their uh, on the basis of their position as a director or officer or executive, and that's what mm -hmm. that DNO insurance will help do. It will in fact help provide some of the costs of defense and other things if it goes sideways. And if none of this ever happens, great. Look how smart we were. We took all you know. We had our airbag. We had our seatbelt. Um, yeah, and if, if something bad happens, look how smart we were. We were ready for it. Correct, correct. And wasting a few thousand dollars in insurance is a heck of a lot better than losing your title, the entire portfolio. So, uh, All day. You, you've mentioned kind of the first line of defense, uh, and I like that term, is, is insurance. Uh, give us an example of a typical second line of defense. Is it the entity that, uh, that you're talking about? <sighs> Yeah, I think the you know the first line of defense is really a couple of things. It's number one, it's having the right kinds of insurance, as you said. That's the street level. Number two is having policies and procedures that keep us out of trouble in the first place. That might mean a compliance policy. It might mean a security policy on how we're handling our clients' uh, checks and credit card numbers. It might be an employment manual that says what people are and are, are not allowed to do and say and wear at work, um, you know, to avoid those kinds of conflicts. So those are, the first line of defense is really, is really two things. It's insurance and good behavior. The second line of defense is more proactive and um, overt, and that is probably the uh, the legal tools that we've alluded to several times that, that I'm really responsible for. And what that second line of defense is, is making your personal and professional assets legally distinct from each other as a first step. <laughs> then it's subdividing those two buckets, one personal, one professional, to the greatest degree possible um, in a way that is uh, time and cost effective for clients. So one of the common questions we get, for instance, Ron, is do I need an LLC for every single piece of property? Right? Mm -hmm. good, good question. Um, and the answer is, yeah, and the best answer that I give people is it depends. Um, you know, it depends on, in my view, three different things. Number one, what's the equity in the property? Did you go out and buy 10 properties at $10,000 each down? Or did you go out and buy one property and put a million dollars of cash into it, right? Mm -hmm. So the first question is, what's the equity? The second equity. question is, what is the use of the property? 
meaning are we using, is this property a residential rental or an apartment building uh, or a strip mall? All of those have relatively high levels of liability. Or did we go out and buy three dirt lots that we're just going to sit on for five years because we think they were a good deal and they're going to be worth something, which have a much lower degree of liability? Mm-hmm. And then okay. the third so question is, how much of your net worth does that represent? Right. Okay. And I was going to say that that would be another point that uh, definitely you know needs needs to be addressed. Now you've mentioned a couple real important things, but before we continue, for our listeners that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host Ron Naraki. You can listen to the earlier portion on the archive, or if you missed prior shows, you can find them on the archives www.wealthdna.us. Today our guest is Ike Devji, an attorney with Davis Miles who specializes in asset protection and wealth preservation, which is our topic today. Now, Ike, when you when you mentioned some of the entities, uh, it reminds me of the the book Rich Dad Poor Dad. Kiyosaki and Lecter appropriately stated that each of us should have a company for tax reasons. Should they have also emphasized the tax, uh, the asset protection aspect, in addition to the tax side? Yes, they they should have, and in fact, you know, they've recently jumped on the bandwagon. I think they've started talking about that um, a little bit more as they as they should. Remember that this is not, um, number one, the best asset protection is typically tax neutral, meaning that it's not, at least when we're talking about the legal tools, but in many cases there is an incidental tax benefit that the law creates. So we love it when we can get both, but we try and keep clients clear of that. But yes, I certainly think that there is a big gap, Ron, in this country between the large number of people that are willing to work hard, become good at something, and make money, and a smaller subset of those people that are good at keeping that money. And I think that any book that talks about getting rich should also emphasize very heavily staying rich. And we have seen, particularly in Arizona, um, you know, think about it. In 2009, for instance, one of the most expensive high net worth residential communities in Arizona and in the country is this little area we call Paradise Valley. Correct. And Paradise Valley has a number of very high net worth people and a number of expensive homes, but it's a tiny little area. I mean, geographically, it's a, it's a postage stamp. And even in that tiny little area, in, at one point in 2009, there were 100 plus short sale properties available. So all of these people who had luxury multi-million dollar homes and cars and private schools and the whole bit, all of those people were put in a position where they had to leave their homes because of a Mm -hmm. lack of this kind of planning. All of those people probably worked hard, spent a great deal of time every day becoming rich, and probably spent a great deal of time continuing to generate income. Um, you know, when we see a lot of people say, oh, I've always meant to work on some asset protection or talk about that or investigate it, but I'm just too busy working. Right. And right. they're too busy working to protect what they're so busy working to make. <laughs> so. Right. Correct. Now it's well said. Now, you, want, you know, a lot of investors think that trusts, uh, including IRAs, which most people don't realize we have talked about in the past, as well as LLCs or any, any form of corporate entity, provide protection from lawsuits. Either can be used for, and therefore they think that either one of them is kind of equally for owning real estate. How do you respond to them? Uh, You know, I think that that is generally good 
advice, um, that it is a certainly a great place to start. Uh, there are, we use trusts, LLCs, partnerships. We use a whole variety of different tools to defend people and their wealth every day, and those, which tools we use depends on the asset. What we try and teach people, and, and this is a little bit of a generalization, I'm going to be the first one to say that, is that personal assets should go into personal tools and business assets should go into business tools or business entities. Right, So if it is an invest piece of investment real estate, then yeah, maybe an LLC is a great first level line of defense to wrap that thing in. And in that case, that LLC would make that rental property, for instance, legally distinct from the owner and her personal home and her other business that allowed her to buy that rental property, let's say. Uh, and it would be the thing that would theoretically be responsible. So it would it would it would make that that asset legally distinct. It would help create a very clear pathway as to who had liability, ideally, and um, you know it, it would help protect the asset from her. So, for instance, if the owner happens to be a surgeon and she gets caught in a medical malpractice suit. We are hoping that having that home not in her personal name but in that LLC as a rental investment and then owned by another entity would provide some shelter and some differentiation in the eyes of the law. Uh, so, yes, that is a great, a great um, feature. And like I said, depending on what strategy and how much it's worth and what you're going to do with this piece of property. Is it a cabin that you bought as a family legacy that you want to be there for the next five generations? Well, right. in that case, we're going to use a trust, not an LLC. Trust, exactly. Right? Also, you brought up self-directed IRAs. I love mm -hmm. IRAs and other things like that because they are creditor protected, not because Ike or Ron said so, but because right. it is the law. Arizona in particular, where we happen to be speaking from, and these laws vary from state to state, but in Arizona, for instance, most people don't realize that uh, deposits in an IRA are creditor protected and even bankruptcy remote after only 120 days. I don't know of any other asset that's as well or as quickly protected in Arizona. Right. Now, the flip side of that is that while you certainly can use IRAs to hold investments, and that's their, their main purpose, as we get more sophisticated and diverse in the number and kinds of things that people are using IRAs for, I have uh, always cautioned them to get the help of a professional to make sure that their self-directed IRA is compliant because, Ron, I've got to be honest with you, I see a lot of people using self-directed IRAs for things that the IRS is not excited about or in some cases actually explicitly pro prohibits. So we warn people, um, you know, what they can and can't do and that they need that professional help. And, in fact, I have a short list of things that you can't do with a self-directed IRA that uh, it's only four or five items. If we have time, I'm happy to share it with you. Okay. Let's, let, let me hold that for one second. Because you touched on such an important piece, and you actually used the words uh, a little bit earlier that I want to make sure you address for our, for our listeners. And that's the key difference between entity being sued from outside versus from the inside. Now, when we say entity, whether it's a, a, a trust or an LLC, uh, explain that difference of being sued from the inside or the outside. 
Sure, uh, absolutely. Well, let's say, for instance, um, let's go back to our simple example of the rental property that we were talking yep. about. If you're being sued from the outside, we're going to assume that somebody has an action against the owner that is unrelated to the property itself, meaning mm -hmm. that um, the owner of property A got into a serious car accident on the way home on the 202 on a rainy afternoon in mm -hmm. July and uh, was sued on the basis of that car accident and the injuries, and the opposing party is looking to recover wealth or assets in different forms, including looking at this guy's rental house. That's an outside lawsuit. An inside lawsuit is the same property owner uh, rents to someone who uh, has a guest over who slips on the poorly graded sidewalk which the sprinkler system oversprays every night and makes it wet mm -hmm. and even more slippery and falls down and breaks her hip. Mm -hmm. And rather than suing her nephew, the college student who you rented to, she is going to sue you, the owner. And right. the owner of that, L of that property, let's say, might be an LLC, and all of that LLC's assets, including any other property that it owns, would also be at risk for that liability. Is that a good way to break mm -hmm. that down? It is. It, it is. I mean, it definitely works for me, and, and I'm sure we'll eventually get questions on that. But I think that's a, that, that sticking with that example, I think makes a lot of sense. So when when the tenant uh, or or something the tenant did causes the lawsuit that's owned by the LLC, that's a suit from the inside because the LLC owns it. And if it's something I, as the owner of the LLC, did, uh, then it's the uh, it's from the outside and a totally different set of liabilities and totally different sets of uh, protections uh, that we have to worry about. But I guess the way the, the, the key point that I want to make sure we address with that, uh, if indeed the um, that uh, rental property there is a lawsuit because of it, then everything owned by that individual entity as is at risk if indeed it suits me inside. Correct. That is absolutely correct, Ron. And that not only would include other other pieces of property, it <laughs> would hold the cash being held inside that entity. Right. Uh, and it would even it could yeah, theoretically even include the receivables that that entity will receive in the future. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that one of the problems that I spot is somebody might walk into my office and they'll say, "Oh, I've got I think I've got a good baseline, Ike. I've got four pieces of rental property, and each one is separate use, and each one is high equity, and each one is important to me. So I put each one in a separate LLC, and I'll say, great." in your particular fact pattern, that sounds like a great start. And then I start asking questions about how much money do you have in each of these LLCs in addition to the property. And what we find is, Ron, that many smaller investors or private investors make their LLCs or their other street-level investment entities too fat with cash and don't take that money out, and they leave that money at risk. Okay. Or, or they, for example, they mix them with their business. Uh, they business and one of the rental properties in the same one because I didn't feel like creating a fourth entity or something like that. So, uh, well, that, that, well. Is, uh, that is certainly a, a huge uh, exposure where you are jeopardizing one, one item for the completely unrelated exposure uh, and liability of the other. So, for instance, mm -hmm. I have a pizza shop. 
it's in an LLC, and I use my pizza shop LLC to buy a rental house. Somebody comes to my pizza shop and chokes on pizza. Now I'm going to yep. lose my rental house and my pizza shop. And, I, so everything that, and I'm, it's obviously a, a silly, simple analogy, but we see people do that every day, Ron, even people who, sh who should know better and are sophisticated legally and financially. Um, the most common example is people who keep their leased vehicle that mm -hmm. they, they drive, and then they rent another vehicle or lease another vehicle for their spouse, and both of those are in the name of the business. And I tell my okay. clients, if you kill someone with the car, they now own your construction company. Correct. Correct. Yes, exactly right, and, and there, that, that's you know very very clearly a good example. And, and you know one of the things you touched on earlier is, is one of your questions you ask, and, and whether it's cash or equity, how much is in each of those entities? So even though most investors never think of it, having uh, your properties highly leveraged actually reduces your risk of losing that asset. Correct. Yes, I mean, and, and what you're talking about is equity stripping, and I think there's a, another corollary of that. There's an unspoken question that goes with that, which is, for instance, I'm afraid to pay off my house because if I do, then I'm afraid someone will take it from me, <laughs> which is something that we hear all the time. And yes, there is certainly a... Um, there is certainly a cost-benefit analysis to someone looking at you or one of your listeners as a client when they look at any piece of property. So, for instance, am I going to spend a great deal of time and money trying to take Ron's $10 million luxury mansion away from him if Ron owes $9.7 million on it? Correct. Right? Obviously not. Correct. But if Ron owned a $400,000 home at full equity, I would Correct. be much more excited about that. Exactly. And so that is, a, I guess, a very rudimentary form of asset protection is mm -hmm. minimizing your equity. The good news is that there are ways to do it and own property that can segregate and limit your exposure on each one of those pieces of property so that if there isn't another good reason to carry debt, like you are using that money somewhere else or you've, you know, you've got a 3.5% HELOC on your home and you've got that money out invested and making you eight, well, great, there are people who think that way and can get that done. But I would tell you that it's not necessary and it requires, uh, it requires some good advice and some very careful thought. So, uh, yes, it can work as asset protection, but do you need to be afraid of having equity because it can't be protected? No. Does that make sense, okay. the way I'm, I'm, sure. I'm kind oh, of differentiating that? Yeah, oh, exactly. And it sounds like for, for a future show, that would be a topic we'd want to dig into is a little bit of what are some of those ways we can, uh, we can you know, uh, do, accomplish the same thing without having to uh, hold, hold a large mortgage. Although, quite frankly, I'd rather own 10 properties uh, with 10% uh, loans, uh, with 10% uh, equity than I would one property with 100% equity, just from the income viewpoint. But that's, again, my personal preference and, and you know, my ability. All right, and that, that is exactly the kind of calculation that needs to go into it. You, you nailed it, Ron. It's what I don't want people doing is saying, I'm never going to pay anything off because if I do, people will take it away from me. It gotcha. needs to be okay. a more reasoned approach exactly like you just outlined. Okay. Now, the, you mentioned one of the things, the most, one of the most common uh, suits or, or, or risks that people face is, is employee lawsuits. Uh, what are some of the most common mistakes people make in their asset protection planning? 
Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. In fact, I have an article I wrote on this called Fatal Flaws of Asset Protection Planning. And the number one fatal flaw is not doing anything. Remember that the concept that you and I have spent the last hour talking about is best equated to net worth insurance. And just like with insurance, you can't insure your home after the fire or your car after you've wrecked it. So mistake number one is not doing anything. And you can only take the kind of steps we're talking about before you are in trouble. You can't, you can't get sued run out and get an asset protection attorney and ask them to do these things because that's illegal at that point. It's legal beforehand, but not after. Mistake number two is thinking you're not rich enough to worry about it. We talked about okay. this earlier, right? Who, who suffers more? Um, mistake number three is probably not differentiating between estate planning uh, documents and asset protection planning. Gotcha. Meaning that you use something like a revocable living trust that most people also refer to as a family trust, and they mm -hmm. put their home and their car and their investment accounts and every other thing of value that they own in it and are shocked to learn upon the first crisis that the, because the first word on that trust is revocable, it's not going to protect anything from anyone as long as they're still alive. Uh, those mm -hmm. are you know those are just three of of many um, you know that we've listed. Uh, I think my my top list Excellent has list. nine. Um, okay. And the, one of the other ones that it includes is too many eggs in one basket, which was the how many how many properties per LLC question. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Okay. It, one of the things that before we, we we close here in a little bit, let's remind our listeners how they contact you, learn more about asset protection. Let's give us that. Let's give them that website again. My pleasure. Again, my personal website is www.proassetprotection.com. P-R-O-A-S-S-E-T protection.com. And if you go to that website, you will be able to contact me if you'd like. Uh, it's got a phone number listed. Um, it's got, you have email contact options, and perhaps as or more importantly, I have a huge amount of information for advisors and consumers that is the, it is the product of my doing this every day exclusively for the last 11 years. Uh, and so many of the things that we have learned um, are, are there for you as education, and we'd love to share that with you. Okay. Now, we've covered a lot of aspects, uh, one of which I've, I've held off on, and I want to make sure you give a little time to, to give us that list, but I think it's an important one is for the self-directed IRAs, which things uh, are not allowed inside of there. Uh, plus, I'd like to give you a chance to add any things that we didn't have time to cover that are actually critical kind of at this uh, early stage of somebody understanding asset protection. You bet. Well, I think number one is to... One of the things I'd like to emphasize is that there is something everyone should do. In some cases, it might be as simple as max funding their, uh, their qualified plans and at their current income and asset level, making sure that they have something like disability insurance, which is a key element of asset protection as well, protecting your income, uh, or having long-term care insurance or having health insurance. Those are the most basic forms of asset protection that the middle class must concentrate on. So number one, don't count yourself out. Number two, please think about every day and every hour you've spent working 
to acquire whatever it is you have. And it doesn't matter if it's less than a million or more than a hundred million. Whatever you have is important to you. Put some value on it and think about what, how, how much time and effort it took. Take some steps to protect it. So those are two basic things from a philosophical viewpoint. For something more specific, let's go back to the self-directed IRA. Uh, I have a whole article I've written on this with the help of an expert who is actually a, a self-directed IRA administrator. But let's leave your uh, your clients, or your, sorry, your listeners, with some specific bullet points. Number one, don't borrow money from your self-directed IRA. It is prohibited in most circumstances. Number two, uh, don't sell, exchange, or lease property to the self-directed IRA. That doesn't mean you can't use it mm -hmm. to own property, but you have to be careful how you make those transfers between yourself and the IRA. For instance, one mm -hmm. lady called me recently and said she sold the condo that she lived in to her IRA. Uh, clearly a prohibited transaction. Uh, don't use the proceeds of the self-directed IRA as collateral for a loan. Um, don't use the self-directed IRA to transfer income or lend money to a disqualified person. And disqualified is a specific legal term of art that we explain in the article I'm talking about. And then the final one is don't receive, unquote, unreasonable compensation for managing IRA assets. So if you have one tiny rental home that you've got set up the right way under your self-directed IRA in an LLC, you can't pay yourself five grand a month to be the property manager. Believe it or not, as silly as these examples might sound, these are things we see people try to do every day. Okay. And there's the flip side I would even add to that, which is some people will say, well, I won't charge for any of the work I'm doing because, uh, gee, I would do the work anyway. Uh, and now they are contributing to their IRA uh, above the limits uh, potentially, and then basically they're doing something that's not allowed. Absolutely, absolutely, and this is why having that, you know, having the right help, and which is not me, uh, I am not a self-directed IRA administrator. But when I have clients who use them, you better believe that I get someone on the phone who is. Exactly. Well, and also it sounds like you have some great articles that'll help people with that. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you, Ike. And uh, hopefully, most of our listeners now know how important a topic this is. And secondly, if any wondered how we would finally find enough to talk about in an hour, they're now starting to probably think, why don't we have another couple hours to cover the other aspects that apply to them? <laughs> so, uh, well, I'd love to do that if you have an interest in the future, Ron. And I certainly appreciate you sharing so much time with me. All right, I, that was exactly what I was going to ask, if you'd be uh, willing to join us again in the future. So I'm sure we'd like to dig into some of these things, of course, repeating some of the essential ones we've talked about and maybe even bringing up some case histories of where things went wrong. So really appreciate that, Ike, and uh, look forward to talking to you. And, and sometime when I'm over at uh, your office there in Tempe, I hope to stop by and at least shake your hand and say hello. I would love that. I, am, I have offices there and uh, right at, in, the, in the middle of town on 32nd and Camelback, so I'm sure you and I will connect one way or the other. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Okay, appreciate that. Appreciate it. Okay. Look forward to talking to you uh, sometime again in the future. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Ron. Bye. Now, for those listeners who saw the uh, posting for the show and comments about how critical a topic this is for all listeners, I'm confident you now understand what I meant. Remember my brief comment during the introduction that I don't want you to re-listen to the show 20 years from now and regret not taking it seriously. Since I'm heavily involved in real estate investing, this is a topic that often comes up when I talk to investors. Uh, so I've become pretty well versed, but each of the times I talk to experts like Ike Devji, I continue to learn more. 
Now, fortunately, I come from a corporate finance background, therefore looking for these potential risks uh, has served me well. But that doesn't mean that I can sit back and feel like my portfolio is bullet for, uh, bulletproof, excuse me, at least not with all of the spreading of the wealth that's being talked about. Now, I already know the government's trying to find ways to take some money of mine away, and yours as well, and I'm well aware that tenant lawsuits are one of the most significant risks that landlords, landlords face. Yes, the probability may be low that it'll happen, but it could be the same about, like uh, you might say with your house or office burning down. Very low probability it'll ever happen. I just happen to have dealt with that about three years ago and I fully appreciate the fire specifically, and I also uh, therefore appreciate there's a second piece of it. Maybe low probability, but it's the potential loss that counts. When we talk about asset protection, your potential loss could be more than 100% of your current assets. If you lost in a lawsuit where the damages exceeded your assets, you could be liable for continuing to make payments for the rest of your life. Obviously not a risk I want to take, one of the things that I find some of the uh, people that take some of this general advice and try to do it on their own, they run into a situation of, for example, putting everything into the entity that they created to kind of uh, get the maximum benefit. Let me give you one simple example we didn't have a chance to talk about uh, in this short hour. By putting your personal car in a family trust or in a company that also has your financial investments, you could actually increase your risk. Why? Well, remember the question I asked about being sued from the outside or the inside? If that car is involved in a major accident, it's now on the inside of that entity, and therefore everything in that entity is at risk. It's not just the insurance on your car and your personal assets. It's everything that's in that entity as well. And it doesn't stop you from being sued in addition to giving up everything in the entity. Now, the bottom line, a strong asset protection plan needs to be uh, high on your list, especially as your income increases, just like tax planning becomes more important as your income rises. Regular listeners know our objective here is to share the investment fundamentals and form you investments that can help build your wealth. We want to help one million people become millionaires, and ideally you'll be among them, which means you'll need an asset protection plan. If you missed uh, part of today's discussion, the link is, as always, the same in the announcement for the archived version as for the live one we just had. And that link is also on WealthDNA.us. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in this Phoenix, Scottsdale area, for helping us put together this show for you. And you will not want to miss the next show, rescheduled from April. I certainly plan to be here. We'll be discussing MIRAs and GRAs versus IRAs and 401ks with Teresa Gilarducci. We will cover what's probably the most dramatic changes to affect your retirement being planned in Washington, D.C. By the way, that's the same group looking for money in each of our pockets and portfolios. This change doesn't only affect U.S. citizens, all of our listeners worldwide. You may have seen a similar concept already dropped on citizens in several countries around you. Surprisingly, there have been no revolts or uprisings to date. Could this time be different? The Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the fourth Monday. The next uh, one, of course, is the fourth Monday of July. Monday, July 28th, 9 a.m. Arizona, same place, same time. And we always have the lineup of guests on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows, as I mentioned. If you didn't get the reminder about this show, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. Happy investing and putting up legal walls around your assets. 
been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.